Welcome to On Mike, still producing shows in quarantine, still offering conversation with creative, vibrant guests with projects you should know about. Today's guest is not only a fine friend, but he's become the first repeating guest, not once, but twice, and with good reason. He's a New York Times bestselling author many times over and host of two History Channel TV shows. One is called Decoded, the other one Lost History. We're talking about Brad Meltzer. The latest book is a must for Abraham Lincoln fans or anyone who enjoys a historic thriller that'll keep you reading late into the night. Brad has teamed up with co-author Josh Mensch to bring us The Lincoln Conspiracy, the secret plot to kill America's 16th president, and why it failed. This has nothing yet to do with Ford's Theater or John Wilkes Booth. Are you interested? Want to know more? I sure do. So without further ado, Brad Meltzer, I invite you, sir, to once again join me on mic. This is a story that very few people had known about. If they did, they didn't know the details. Were you also new to a lot of this stuff, Brad? You know, uh, I, I knew the, the general kind of outer pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, but I didn't have the picture of the center. And it blew me away. I mean, right, we, we all know the story of John Wilkes Booth destroying and ending the Lincoln presidency. But this is obviously the first secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln at the start. And it was years before. Fort Sumter, all the uh, coordinates that bring us to the beginning of the Civil War are happening as this plot is unfolding. It's a great history of where we were at that point in the late 18th and, and I think that's what was important to Josh Mensch and I as we worked on it together is, you know, it's very titillating to say, hey, we found and we're going to tell you about the secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln that you've never heard of. It's far more interesting to me to say, look at the context of where this is happening. This is a time when America is deeply divided. The Civil War is breaking out. Each side hates the other. Whatever side you're on, you think the other side are horrible, awful people. Does that sound familiar to you, Jordan? <laughs> Unfortunately, right? it does. Thank God the bloodshed isn't part of where we are today for the most yeah, part. Yeah, right. I mean, but it feels but like it, right? It, it just does. Feel yeah. that. And, and, and so it became a book for us. Truly, we were looking at different plots and different things. We found a bunch of great ones. And we said, this is the one where we can actually tell the story of the context of what a great leader does at a time of divisiveness. And what Abraham Lincoln does is he doesn't divide us more. He, he, he fights for unity. I'll tell you, as a Lincoln file, I just can't get enough. There are some aspects to Lincoln's personality that you uncover and share with us. What were some of the things that you really enjoyed writing about when, when writing about Lincoln in this book? Yeah, you know, for me... I think that if you if you woke up any American at three o'clock in the morning and said, tell me about Abraham Lincoln, they would blurt out in the middle of the night, uh, log cabin, free the slaves, wore the hat. You know, like we know the cliches and we know Abraham Lincoln at the end, you know, this amazing, you know, icon that we've built and is the American dream himself personified. What is far more interesting to me is to see the early version of Abraham Lincoln. And that's what this book really lets you see because it's the start of his presidency. He's literally taking a trip to be sworn in as the 16th president. And he has to take a train from his hometown in Springfield, Illinois, and go to Washington, D.C. And the only way you can get there is you got to go through Baltimore. But Maryland at the time is a slave state. So the plot is very simple. The plot is, uh, you know, there's a secret society. They're going to kill Abraham Lincoln when he comes through Baltimore, and they're going to end this presidency before it begins. But what we get to see, and what surprised me, is getting to see 1.0 version of Abraham Lincoln, uh, mm -hmm. where he's nervous and he's anxious. He's making mistakes. He loses, they lose the inaugural address, the copy of it. 
there's a moment when they tell him he's won the presidency. He's on the back of his building, uh, back of a building playing handball. Mm. And I, I just, lo- you know, one thing we do, Jordan, and I love that you and I get to talk about this. Cause I can't, you know, really, most places don't want to have this great long form discussion. But what we do with our heroes in America is we build these great statues. And then we go to the, you know, bottom of the podium and we worship. And we do those people who we've made statues of a huge disservice because we've turned them into these kind of perfect people. And it's far more interesting to me to see Abraham Lincoln making these mistakes. It's far more interesting to me to see his life at risk and him screwing things up because all of us, whatever, whoever you look up to, whether it's Abraham Lincoln, Rosa Parks, you know, Dr. King, whoever it might be, have moments where they were scared and terrified and they don't know if they can go on. And they do. And I love the fact that you know, when you see Abraham Lincoln be flawed in that way and make the mistakes at the beginning of his presidency, we're reminded that all of us are amazing and we're all awful and we're all terrified and we're all brave. And some of us in the same day and some of us in the same minute. Brad, there's so much and we don't have all kinds of time. We'll get into the plot and the the heroes of the story, which involve the detective agency, the Pinkertons. But I do want to bring up a couple of things. First of all, the uh, arduous trek that it took to get to the inauguration, you know, all the stops, all of the handshaking, all of the speeches, just grueling schedule. I mean, they talk about today's primary schedules being pretty grueling. But there's one scene, and I know you'll love to talk about this, in which Lincoln meets up with the little girl who asked him to grow the whiskers. (laughs) Yes. So this is one of my favorite scenes in the whole book. Uh, Grace Bedell is this little girl's name, and she writes a letter to Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, when he gets elected, it's all falling apart. Three days after he gets elected, South Carolina passes a resolution and says, we are going to, you know, we want to secede from the union. They hate him. They hate him so much. They won't even put him on the ballot in, in 10 of the Southern states because they're just like, we don't, we hate him so much. We're not even, even though he rightfully won the nomination, he can't be on the ballot. So everyone's calling him ugly. They're all calling him gawky looking. They're all calling him weird looking. And so Grace Bedell, this little girl, writes a letter to Abraham Lincoln that basically says, you know, you should try growing a beard. I think you'll look better. And Abraham Lincoln grows a beard. It's not like he says, okay, you know, yes, this little girl. But he writes back to that girl, like, you know, I took your advice. And when he stops and the train stops in her town, they send for her. And there she comes with her flowers that she's holding for President Lincoln with the most famous, now famous beard in all of American history. And God, do I love that detail. And I, I actually heard that story years ago because that, the letter is uh, the National Archives has the letter that Lincoln wrote back. They have one of the copies. Mm. And they've shown me, the archivist of the United States has shown me that letter. But I just thought, isn't that wonderful that this man who we hold up as, you know, the best of us, that, you know, has that great connection with this little girl of all things who gives us great advice and changes the way he looks forever. Well, we, we talk about Lincoln a lot in his tragedy in life, and you explore this a lot with his early days, losing his mother, losing his sister. I mean, and then, of course, losing, what, three children? His only surviving son was father. Robert. And his father. Yeah. There's a man that is beset by melancholy and, and depression for obvious reasons. And then he faces the greatest challenge that any president will probably ever face, given all the challenges we've had. But I love the way the, uh, the story evolves. And he's getting closer to Baltimore and people are aware of a plot. And thanks to the Pinkertons, Allen and company, 
that plot becomes unveiled. Tell us a little bit more about Alan Pinkerton because he's a key figure here. Yeah, so um, I'll start with the real fun of it is there's a speeding train in the middle of the night. And on this train, there's some passengers. The passengers we're focused on, there's four people on there. There's two businessmen, there's a woman, and she has a brother who's an invalid. But none of them are who they say they are. (laughs) One of the men is actually Alan Pinkerton. He's the head of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, famous private eye. The woman is Kate Warren. She's America's first female private eye. She's amazing, Mm -hmm. and she's clearly become my hero, as you see in the book, as she saves Mm -hmm. the day. Her brother is certainly not her brother, nor is he an invalid. That's Abraham Lincoln. They've given him a fake name. They've given him a disguise that I won't ruin because it's so fun to right, see. But they right, were, right. they were speeding off in the middle of the night to avoid this secret society that's planning to kill Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, that's how the book opens. I just ruined chapter one of the Lincoln conspiracy. Oh, you didn't ruin anything. <laughs> it, it, it just makes you want to read, read, read more. I'll tell you the uh, harrowing moments, uh, even though we know the outcome, he obviously survived to be inaugurated. As usual, Brad, your thriller pen comes out and you're writing this. It's all historically accurate. You're writing it like a thriller. And I love the character of Warren, who's a real live human being, a female, the first official private eye in the history of this country. And, and she steps up and they all step up. They go undercover in a very dangerous time, in a very dangerous place. Yeah, you know, one of the things, so Pinkerton himself is a guy who just starts solving crimes on his own, but he, he just gets a, you know, he loves it. And so he opens up his agency. Um, and one of the things he does, a 26-year-old woman walks into his office named Kate Warren. She's a widower. She's got no kids. She's got to feed her family, though, and made some money. And so she walks in at a time when no one is hiring any woman for law enforcement, much less being a private detective, and says, I want a job at the Pinkerton Detective Agency. And he does the craziest thing of all in that moment is he hires her. (laughs) And it's not not crazy, of course, by our standards, but no one thinks that that's a a good idea back then. But he's brilliant in this level. He looks at this woman and realizes, you know what? There are people who are going to talk to her in ways that they would never talk to me. And he's right. And that is the secret of their infiltration methods is, is Alan Pinkerton picks all these different men and women. And Kate Warren is not the only woman he picks. And they infiltrate this Southern slavery, pro-slavery group and get them talking. Mm. Like just undercover uh, uh, cops. Like they're literally befriend them. They take on fake names, fake identities. They become good friends. They go into bars and they start cursing out Abraham Lincoln and they make more friends. And it's, that's his superpower is he can infiltrate like, a, you know, it's, it's kind of like the way um, bugs can take down, termites can take down a house, right? They chew the foundation and then the whole thing mm. crumbles. And that's what he does. They just can infiltrate and pull it apart. And one of my favorite moments in the book is when the Pinkertons eventually go and tell Abraham Lincoln your life is in danger. There's a plot against you. And they knock on his door in the middle of the night in his hotel room. And they tell him and and they say, we got to get you out of here. You have an event in Philadelphia tomorrow. Let's skip the event. Let's get you out of here tonight. And we'll get you to DC faster than anyone knows. And Lincoln says, no, I'm not going. I'm not missing my event in Philadelphia tomorrow. And they're like, what? And you know what he's planning to do in Philadelphia tomorrow? He's scheduled to be there to raise a flag to honor one of his heroes on the birthday, one of his heroes, a man named George Washington. And Lincoln loves Washington, doesn't want to miss it. He goes to Philadelphia, sure enough, doesn't miss the event, goes and honors George Washington. And what I love is in that speech he gives that day, Josh and I found the actual speech 
And he says, we should stand together as a country. And if not, you should assassinate me. And it's an amazing moment because Lincoln at that moment knows, he knows that there's a plot to kill him. And it's soon after that, that the Pinkertons whisk him away. And again, uh, you'll see it for yourself, right. you won't believe it. But they well, whisk him away and, and history almost gets changed. Here's something that really shocked me. I thought that the villain of the piece, the, the head villain would be somebody named Beauregard Sherman Smith. And sure. instead, instead, it's somebody named Cipriano Ferrandini, and he's a barber at the Barnum Hotel in Baltimore, and uh, an unlikely conspirator, let me put it that way, just based on his name and background. Tell me a little, just a little bit, and they share with the audience, a little bit about who he was and why he's important to the story. Um, you know, and it's exactly right. I mean, the, that the bad guy is the barber, of all things. That's who in the secret society is really behind the scenes pulling all the strings. And he works in this wealthy hotel in Baltimore. You go down to the basement of the hotel and you know he's a guy who puts his ad in the newspaper and says, whites only, he will only hire someone who's white, not hiring if you're black, no surprise, the total racist. Mm -hmm. And if you whisper the right password and the right code word in the right spot, you know, you might get the, the secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln whispered in your ear. And it's his barber of all things um, that is really kind of moving and running the show. And, and as you said, you know, with a name like Cipriano Ferrandini, he's of course got the, the twirly mustache that you would, it would imagine goes with a good bad guy. Um, but it is no joking okay. around. He's a real threat. And, and it's pretty amazing to watch him just rile up people who are looking for an outlet for their hatred, because that's what it is. It's hatred. Right. You know, right. Abraham Lincoln's the most hated president before or after he when when he comes as i said they don't let him on the ballot they call him ugly they rip him apart they burn him in effigy they everything they can do to see this man as the enemy they do you often uh, refer to the days prior to the presidential campaign and it's it's a chronological story and we see him debating douglas the famous lincoln douglas debates and i'm fascinated by one aspect of lincoln and that is his ability to project that voice which was high pitched and yet, as you say, and everyone's agreed to this, that he was able to cut through without any kind of uh, audio amplification and be heard, uh, even at the inaugurals. What do you know about his ability to speak and how it was done back then, Brad? You know, it makes no logical sense to me. It's one of the <laughs> details in the book that, like, you know, they have a, they have a crowd of 1,000 people gathered around. They have no microphones, no amplification system. And he's given this speech, you know, and he's talking for two hours on end, you know, on this fortnight, sir, Jordan Rich, you shall have the opening statement, which will last 17 hours. I will reply with my reply. That will be 19 hours. And everyone's listening. And everyone's listening. And, you know, but I'm exaggerating the time, but it's a really, you know, it truly yeah. is an hour long response. Right. You're replying for an hour with a point by point takedown of what, you know, your, uh, what Douglas is saying. And people are listening. And I don't know how they're pulling it off, and I don't know how they're getting the nuances, but they, you know, by all reports, they are. You mentioned a few minutes ago when we started a handball. Lincoln was out playing handball with some buddies. It's nice to see that side of Lincoln too. The uh, the the Springfield, Illinois lawyer, the you know the law office with Herndon and all that. I mean, a, a different, totally different side to Lincoln than I'm used to reading about. And, you know, that is that is my favorite side. I, I, you know, we've read and seen enough books about Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. We've read and seen all the things. Spielberg directed the very movie. I mean, it can't get bigger. But I'm far more interested 
in the regular guy in Illinois who right before he leaves goes back to his law office, sits at his desk and is like, you know, when this is all done, I'm coming back here. We're going to do another case. We're going to work together. And his law office partner's like, you're never coming back here. You're never coming back, mm. you know, and that the last thing he does before he, one of the last things he does before he goes to Washington, D.C. is he goes home, goes to see his father's grave, goes to say goodbye to his stepmother who was still alive. He adores, helped raise him. And they have this nice meal together. You see the scene in the book. But what I love is that moment when he leaves and she says, I'm worried that he's going to be assassinated. I'm never going to see him again. And she's absolutely right. Had it been that Lincoln was assassinated prior to uh, taking office, Hannibal Hamlin would have been the president of the United States. And you pose a couple of what ifs, which is now in retrospect, kind of fun to look at, but dangerous to think about. Any overriding thoughts as to what might have happened in the in the case of the Union at that point had Lincoln been shot down? Yeah, you know, to be clear, back then, you did not choose your vice presidential candidate. You didn't choose your running mate. It was chosen for you. And they voted for you at the convention. You suddenly get this guy named, you know, I keep saying Harry Hamlin, like from L.A. Law, right? <laughs> Hannibal true. Hamlin. And, um, and you would get this guy, Hamlin, who, of course, I, even I had never heard. I'm like, who is this? And I forgot it was, that was Lincoln's running mate for in the first term. First and, term, yeah. you know, in, in the first term, if this plot to kill Abraham Lincoln actually succeeds, it's Hamlin who becomes president. Now, does the whole world, do we do even better? Do we get someone who's even more sympathetic, who can realize the wrongs of slavery even faster in terms of the Emancipation Proclamation? Maybe, maybe not. We have we don't no know. idea. We just yeah. have no, and anyone who says they know, they don't know. But what I do know is this, is that the story of Abraham Lincoln is not just the story of the rags to riches kid who teaches himself to read and then ascends to the highest office. The story of Abraham Lincoln, that story itself is, is not the story of a man. It's, it, that's the story of the American dream. And when you lose that, you lose one of those icons that gives us the American dream. And that is, you know, obviously combine that with, of course, the, the outcome in the Civil War, um, it is a far more potent change than I think any of us can fathom. The geography is so present in this book, meaning that uh, Baltimore is so close to Washington, D.C., everything's close to Washington, D.C., and you're talking about armed conflict just at the gates. I mean, here we are in, in this day and age dealing with our own struggles, but that was a pretty scary thought to think that the seat of government in the North was that close to being overrun. Yeah, you know, what's amazing to me, and, and just the way it works, like now you take your Amtrak train and you can ride, you know, from Boston, take it to New York, go out to Philadelphia, D.C., you know, here we are. Um, but back then, the trains were owned, the lines themselves were owned by different, you know, heads of these giant train companies, these magnates. I mean, and if you wanted to go from the Northeast and come to Washington, D.C., you had to stop in Baltimore, but the train didn't go. You got off the train in one train station, and you either walked for a mile or you took a horse-drawn carriage for a mile. You switched to the station that would actually that owned the, the one that took you to Washington, and you got on the train. That's the kill zone. That is where they were going to put the bullseye on Lincoln, that at some point he was going to have to get off one train and go on another. And the reason they knew what train is because, don't forget, no American president had ever been assassinated before. So they were publishing his daily schedule every day in the newspaper, mm -hmm. weeks in advance. Everyone knew so they could show up at the train station and wave and shake his hand and meet him. 
They thought that was a great idea. It's not until four years later when Abraham Lincoln is shot in the head that they realize that's a terrible idea. Mm. But at the moment, they know exactly where Abraham Lincoln's going to be. And when he comes through Baltimore, guess what? We're going to be ready for him. And that was the plot to kill him. And security in those days, of course, it was prior to the Secret Service being formed, I guess, right? And uh, he had his own bodyguards, a a motley crew, to say the least. Yeah, he's got these guys that are just out of central casting. You know, they they have these big mustaches and beards, and they carry, like, you know, Bowie knives on one side and guns on the other, and they're ready for a fistfight. It's kind of like hiring your buddies from high school. Right. To be your, your security. And, and listen, there's something to be said about your tough buddies from high school, but not in the face of this, not when you're the president. And they just don't realize it then. They, they, it's just they, they have no idea that they need to do anything different. Um, to their credit, they do the job. They pull him out of certain situations. They make sure he's safe there. Um, but, you know, at the time, you have to remember that the world was just a different place. And the venomous hatred that went toward Lincoln. It also went to the local cops. So the cops in Baltimore who were put in charge of guarding Lincoln, they were racist too. And they hated mm. Lincoln because they thought he was going to end slavery. So the cops in Baltimore who were assigned to watch him when he came through were the cops who basically were like, you know what, when he comes through, I'm going to watch and turn the other way. And you do what you want. And that's where the danger really begins. Last question or last point of interest, and that is the origin of the Ku Klux Klan. I've always wondered kind of where it might have bubbled up from. And those secret societies, the National Volunteers and others, with their costumes and codes and castles and all this nonsense, it certainly seems as though that was the forerunner of KKK. Oh, it is absolutely. I mean, listen, you know, uh, I hate to say, you know, you bring a lot of racists together and guess what you're going to have, but that's where it comes from. Um, you have these secret societies that used to be kind of military maneuvers. They weren't, you know, the, the Da Vinci Code villains that we think of them today. They were, you know, they were there to, they would march in parades and they were private clubs. And, and then there was this. Then there was basically, hey, we want to make sure that no one ever lets a black man be equal to a white man. And we're going to make sure to do everything in our power to make sure that doesn't happen. And they are the precursor to the Ku Klux Klan. In fact, one of the people who joins the Knights of the Golden Circle, as you see, I won't ruin it, but at the end of the book, is a man mm. named John Wilkes Booth. Yes. And, and he's not part of this plan. He's not, you know, I don't want to connect all the tissue like that, but he's part of that same DNA, which is a racist, awful man who thinks that he can use his own power in the name of really white supremacy. That's what he's doing. And, um, and that's where it begins. You can see, you know, the, the, it all starts and kind of comes from the same spot of, of, of hatred. Well, this is a thrill ride, whether you're a Lincoln file as I am or not. Most people admire Abraham Lincoln. When you read this story, you'll admire the people around him, including uh, the first female detective in the United States back then and the Pinkerton gang and all the others. It's, it's a remarkable story. I'm not surprised. That's why we have you back every time you write a book. Uh, because you're you're so adept at bringing the story to life and making it sparkle on the page. Brad, thank you so much, my friend. I know you're on a, a weird book tour. This is the weirdest book tour ever because you're not leaving your pad, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it is weird because we had, you know, we were supposed to be in Boston with you, seeing you face to face. We had events there. Right. Um, right. And instead, we're basically doing virtual events, uh, you know, still promoting uh, the bookstores that we were going to and trying to get people to buy books locally. But, you know, we're, we're literally beam, I'm being beamed all across the globe, signing books, 
Uh, we've sent out stickers and autograph books in, in Florida. If you order from the Florida bookstore on our website, you can get personalized books for people who need them for Father's Day and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but it's just a totally different way than what we usually do things. Well, a lot of people are reading more than ever these days, and I will highly recommend your book, The Lincoln Conspiracy. Always a pleasure, and stay safe, stay well, and best to your family, my friend. You got it, Sam. I love that. Thank you for supporting us in every different genre, whether it's kids' books, thrillers, or nonfiction like this. Since the start of my career, Jordan, you have been uh, there for us. I really appreciate it. A great friend, Brad Meltzer, author of over 10 thrilling best-selling novels and works of history, and his Ordinary People Change the World series for young readers is not to be missed. Lots of reasons to check into his world and to visit bradmeltzer.com. Thank you for visiting with us, for downloading and subscribing to the podcast. Appreciation goes, of course, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry at Shark Productions, and to all of you for listening. This is Jordan. Until next time, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>